listening to the Bridge Between podcast, a weekly exploration of how a family history research project transforms into a search for understanding, truth, and the points of connection between people. In dialoguing with others, we begin to understand ourselves. My name is Cisco Ramos, and this is The Bridge Between. This week, I am sharing the story that started it all. Learning my place in this world began as a submission to a writing competition at New Philosopher magazine. Eventually, the story was published in 2017 at Teachers College Record, a peer-reviewed journal at Columbia University. The story was hard for me to write because it wove the personal with the political, juxtaposed what the research said with how my life unfolded. Without further ado, learning my place in this world. As the years of toil and weight of uncertainty began to melt from his shoulders, my father cried the night I graduated from college. In what can be described as a moment of existential relief, he shared his deepest fears and wildest dreams with me. Through the tears and moments of nervous laughter, he kept telling me, you are my legacy. That night, my father finally gave himself permission to let go of an internal conflict that he'd been carrying for a very long time. As I look back at that moment and contextualize its unfolding, I am left with the sobering truth that any success that results from my efforts cannot possibly atone for the debt paid to provide for the opportunities I was given. The temptation is present, but to pretend otherwise perpetuates a cultural myth that claims that contemporary efforts can compensate for the struggles of the past. My father, in that moment, believed that my efforts validated his sacrifice. If I'm honest, nothing I do will make up for the years of toil. Success does not make up for lost time. In trying to articulate how the future is built upon the choices of the past, my father was also teaching me a very important lesson about my place in this world. His tears and words, filtered through my pen, could be read as follows. Mijo, you have achieved something that I can scarcely imagine. You are smart gifted, and endlessly resilient despite the obstacles that have been placed on the path before you. You do not take your life or work ethic for granted. That is what makes you, you. You left the house when you were young. Do you remember that night, three weeks after graduation from high school? We drove from Texas to Ann Arbor. I know you were scared and I did my best to comfort you. Deep down, I was afraid because I knew that you were heading to a place where many like you have tried, but few have succeeded. Your body, your mind, and our culture were not considered when that space was created. Speaking Spanish and being Mexican does not jive with the rolling lawns and ivy-covered buildings. It was, in many ways still is, a very different world. Historically, we were probably picking strawberries while others read books and exercised privileges that were denied to us. Through no fault of your own, you started life with so many disadvantages, but we somehow managed to cobble something together that was better. When you attended the University of Michigan, I was so proud that you were there. It wasn't just any school, but the school you've always wanted to attend. Even when you were eight years old, you would tell me, Dad, I'm going to Michigan. Do you remember? It was as if he knew that the universe was telling you a secret so beautiful that it was only meant for your ears. You didn't have a plan. You just knew. 
when you were there, you called often, and I knew you were excited and at times in need of support and guidance. But I could not help you anymore. You were living in a reality that I hadn't ever experienced. You had to do it yourself. I know that your life is going to defy my imagination. I know you sometimes struggle to adjust to a life that was not made for people like us. I had my doubts and at times I held my breath. Regardless of what happened or how you were treated, you kept walking forward. You, in many ways, are the best of what I could have hoped for. You are practical and demand the impossible. You have taught me how to love in ways that I have never thought possible. You challenge and push me to be a better person. Though you are young and still have many lessons to learn about life, know this, you have all the resources within you to handle what life throws your way. Keep building your life on your terms. I love you. Pops. That night, my father didn't have to say anything. His tears and stuttered words composed a poem so profound that it will accompany me for the rest of my life. My father taught me a powerful lesson. The men in my family have always done backbreaking work. My grandfather was a chauffeur prior to working as a chimney sweep. My great-grandfather participated in the Bracero program as a day laborer before scratching out a living as a farmer. In essence, my father was saying that struggle is the pedagogy that teaches the men in our family. In my youth, this translated to performing a version of respectability politics that privileged books over sports, formal over vernacular English, and always being on my best behavior. To be respectable meant having self-respect. Yet always trying to be respectable taught me a hard lesson. Public performance can conceal everything everybody knows about class, racism, and cultural difference. Respectability constrains human agency and the everyday ingenuity of critical thought to maintain dominant social norms. The philosopher Henry Gouraud refers to this as part of the organized violence of forgetting. In my family, this translates to never having the right sort of skin color, never speaking the right kind of English, never wearing the right sort of clothes, always being the wrong sort of person. Marginalized populations, Latinos, working poor, immigrants, understand respectability as an array of features that must be adorned to gain access to resources from the very system you occupy. My dad simply understood this phenomenon as having to speak good English to get a raise at work. I still ask myself why so many hardworking, high-achieving Latinos fail academically. According to existing educational research, there are three barriers that impede college access. Poor academic preparation, financial need, and difficulties navigating college enrollment. Though there might be disagreement about how to address these barriers, there is a near consensus on their effects. They actively reproduce the conditions of marginality students are attempting to overcome. In fact, these barriers are so pronounced that future academic success can be predicted primarily by two variables, your mother's level of educational attainment and the area code of your birth. This means that there is an equal distribution of talent and an unequal share of resources and opportunities. The psychologist Angela Duckworth argues that individuals can overcome such obstacles 
if they have enough grit. I do not fully agree that it is a lack of passion or perseverance that impedes academic success. Besides, individual efforts alone cannot erase structural, racial, or cultural barriers. I believe many ethnic and racial minority students fail because society chooses to ignore them. Historical amnesia and colorblindness are but two manifestations of this problem. In The New Jim Crow, the legal scholar Michelle Alexander persuasively argues how in response to the 1960s civil rights movement, the language of colorblindness and mass incarceration replaced Jim Crow policies as a means to justify racial stratification. When people, are color, people of color are labeled as criminals, for example, a whole range of discriminatory measures in employment, housing, education, and voting are unleashed to create a permanent underclass. Recently, this line of thought re-entered the popular imagination during the 2016 Republican National Convention when Ivanka Trump proclaimed that her father, Donald Trump, is colorblind and gender neutral. Though the message appealed to notions of equality, its subtext to ethnic and racial minorities in the LGBTQ community was clear. I don't recognize you, nor do I acknowledge your history or culture. You are invisible. This statement evokes a central tension in what it means to be an American. The United States cannot define itself without ethnic and racial minorities. Explicit within the idea of being an American is the notion that not everyone is American. Exclusion and displacement are central to becoming, yet never quite fully arriving. This process is relational in that we label ourselves by what we are not. There is no American without Mexican-Americans. There is no American without African-Americans. The United States, put differently, cannot define itself without the other. The American, you could argue, needs the other more than the other needs the American. The narrative hinges on it. Without the other, what do we call the American? The category simply begins to lose its meaning. Yet this supposition can, under certain circumstances, frame the experience of attempting to belong as an either-or proposition. Either you are American or not. There is very little room to maneuver in this scenario. The pressure of always trying to become, yet never being allowed to fully arrive is a familiar one. Identity, ultimately, is about having the courage to tell the world what you would like to be called and how you would like to be treated. If the world tells you who you are, you risk forfeiting the right to define yourself. Next week, I'll share my reflection on a simple question that I kept asking in the archives. Why do we give paper and documents so much power? If you'd like to reach out or get in touch, you can email me at thebridgebetween at gmail.com. That's thebridgebtwn at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at thebridgebetween. If you like what you hear, please rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening.